So, we come to the end, or towards the end of our first full day here together. And I find myself wondering how you're doing. I've spoken with a few of you, and uh, perhaps I have some sense of where it might be and how it might be for some of you as I've sat in this way many times and gone through this process many different ways that it can unfold <coughs> and so that sense of just you know how is it to be doing what we're doing here it's not a complicated thing in many ways is it it's not that complicated anyway seeking to be present in our body and movement and in stillness and different postures and forms and yet it is kind of difficult it's not necessarily easy and uh, you kind of maybe wonder about that I often find myself you know reflecting on what it would be like if we were trying to explain to our friends who'd never done something like this our first day on the retreat well you know we came along and they gave us a soft cushion to sit on and said we should sit there and really not do too much at all for you know 30 or 40 minutes then we could get up and sort of walk back and forth don't go anywhere you know no rush then we might get to lie down and stand up for a while and you know do some guided movements that were pretty slow and gentle and all of that would sound like it was it should be really easy and our friends might be really surprised if we told them you know and by the end of the day I was exhausted I could barely stay awake through the meditation So how are we with this experience? What's it like for you to be here in this situation where we're brought into contact with our life? We're brought into contact with our body. We're brought into contact with our situation, our human condition. And in that, we could say human condition, there's so much a wish for things to not be too difficult. We wish to be at ease, to be comfortable and natural, understandable, not anything wrong with that in itself. And so one of the things we can look at and just notice is whether we're evaluating, whether we're forming some conclusion already about the process of the retreat. Maybe it's going well, we've decided. Or it's not going so well, we've come to the unfortunate conclusion oh dear you know we might be starting to feel a little bit worried about the fact that we've got several more days of this and there's not going to be a lot of entertainment it seems sometimes we can be kind of hard on ourselves expecting that we should be able to perform at whatever this is that we're doing and do it well and succeed and probably even be better than everybody else or at least as good as we think that everybody else must be And there's a way we can start looking at and evaluating how we're doing. I mean, so it's an important question to say, how are we doing? But not in terms of evaluating it. In terms of actually sensing, so so what's it like for me here? Because what's happening here is, in some ways, not so different than what happens in our lives. But it's organized in a way in which we start to see and feel what's happening more clearly or at least more keenly to begin with, and hopefully more clearly over time. Well, one of the things that's, that's common is a kind of a way that we're, we're kind of evaluating, as I said, and often coming to a conclusion that's not too positive, and we can sometimes be hard on ourselves. One of the invitations in practice that we suggest is a kind of to relax, to soften, with the body, with the heart, with the mind, and and seeing that we can't always soften the experience. The experience, sometimes it's hard, sometimes it's tight, sometimes it's uncomfortable when our body aches, when our mind is getting agitated or frantic or just runs completely out of enthusiasm and just, you know, I just want to go to sleep. And yet what we can soften is our attitude, the way in which we relate to this, 
the way in which we measure ourselves, the way in which we put, put pressure on our experience. One of the wonderful and precious invitations of a period of time like this is an opportunity to, to not put so much pressure upon our experience. And <coughs> one thing that may help with being able to do that for ourselves is to, is to realize that we can't judge this process according to what happens while we're here. We can't judge the value of meditation by whether it feels good or not whether it looks good or not, whether it fits in with our ideas of what's supposed to be happening or not. The only way we can really evaluate spiritual practice is by looking at how it affects our life. And we can't quite tell how it's going to affect our life yet. We can see how it affects us right now, how it impacts us, how it maybe challenges us, how it maybe touches us or uplifts us. There may be many different elements to what we experience happening here. While at one level, of course, we are learning and training in certain disciplines of practice that we may call insight meditation, that we may call yoga, that we may speak of as a, a development of certain skills and appropriately, and certain capacities appropriately. There is that developmental or cultivational side to what we're doing in which we can understand this practice and the, the word the Buddha used was bhavana and the, the word bhavana means to bring into being to cultivate and I think it is often or the, a, a useful way to understand it it's like the relationship we might have to gardening where we, we contribute to what might grow in our garden whether we grow flowers or whether we grow vegetables or whether we just grow grass um, maybe we don't have a garden maybe there's just a plant somewhere in the corner of one's, uh, one's apartment that grows and yet we need to take care of it we see it needs warmth, it needs water it needs nutriment in the soil and yet the very growing both of whatever plants we might wish for and equally the various other things that appear in the soil that we weren't planning on growing these things we don't necessarily determine or control them and yet, of course, we affect them. And so this, this process of engaging with our, with our heart, our mind and our life and the way that we're doing, there's a way in which we influence what happens here, but we don't control it. And this can be a little challenging. This can be a little uncomfortable for us to see. We like to live in the, perhaps, sort of temptingly comfortable idea, perhaps fantasy we might say, that if we just kind of could do it right, then things would be all okay. And that anything that's not okay is because we're somehow not quite doing it right. But in fact, the nature of our experience is that sometimes it's hard. This is part of what it means to be a human being. Sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes it's not flattering. Of course, it can be lovely, delightful, beautiful at times. But we easily kind of take all of that a little bit for granted and, and sort of focus on what shouldn't be the way it is. And one of the, I think, really powerful aspects of what the Buddha observed and reflected on in his teaching, which I know for myself when I heard it was really helpful, just the acknowledgement that life includes this which is difficult. And the, the word the Buddha used is dukkha. There is that which is, as one of my teachers says, that which is hard to bear in life, that which isn't easy for us to encounter. We can encounter that experience in our body when it's painful, aching, or when it feels tired and weary, in our hearts that may be touched by by sorrow, by loss, by anger, by fear, anxiety, boredom, confusion, and probably a few of those we may have encountered over the day today. And our minds that sometimes feel so reactive and so busy and lost, we, we just, oh, wouldn't we just love it if our mind could be quiet for a few minutes? Just, oh yes please, could it just not be so noisy? And yet, of course, sometimes it is quiet, but plenty of times and 
often when we'd really like it not to be, it's quite busy, it's active, it can be frantic in, in some ways. Caught in patterns of worry or hope and excitement, planning in the past, planning in the future and reflecting on the past, trying to figure it out, how it was, why it was, what to do about it. All of this is part of our inner life. And what we might begin to notice as we, as we practice, as we place ourselves in a situation where we're in contact with what's happening, where we can't so easily look away, where it's not so straightforward a process to distract ourselves. Even though we get caught in distraction here, of course we do, but we notice it. And sometimes it's uncomfortable to see, oh, I can't actually just decide not to do that. I keep getting distracted. I even get distracted in thinking about why am I so distracted? A lot of our thinking is it becomes about our thinking. And in that there's a there's a kind of a, a cyclic process. Someone in the group I think said they felt like sort of dropping onto a hamster wheel. I can't remember if I'm quoting you exactly, and obviously I'm not going to say who it was, so uh that doesn't matter perhaps too much, but that sense of how we can feel of like, you know, the image of a hamster wheel, of that sort of like we're just going round and round and round and getting nowhere. Sort of spinning our wheels is an image that uh, we might have. If we've ever been stuck in mud or snow in a car and we're just, you know, trying to go somewhere and nothing's happening. We feel like this the sense that maybe there could be more to life than this. Maybe our life isn't just a process, or doesn't have to be just a process of of rushing, of chasing, of running, of pursuing some kind of experience, or rushing to avoid, to escape, and to run away from some other kind of experience. Maybe there's another way we could live in this world. And of course the the society, the culture that we live in, and of course ourselves being part of that, we are often quite sort of kind of drawn in by and compelled by the suggestion and the idea that this, this process of producing or accumulating things or experiences... This is what's going to fulfill us. This is what's going to bring us somehow to a place of peace, a place of rest. Somewhere where the ongoing momentum, the busyness, the drivenness can, can pause, can stop, can come to rest. And coming here, of course, I imagine you have some idea that you know, probably just having more material things isn't going to be what's going to do it for us in the ultimate sense because of course there aren't many material things on offer here you know you can go to the shop and buy some more toothpaste I guess but you know we probably have some idea that's not going to really make me happy even though if we've forgotten our toothpaste we can feel quite happy if we find some that we can you know get without too much trouble and so we've come here with an understanding perhaps that maybe the deeper satisfaction and meaning in life isn't about all of the things that so much of our consumer-driven and materialistly materialism-oriented society seems to say or suggest to us is what life is about. But we can easily have a sense that somehow inner experiences, maybe meditative experiences, spiritual experiences, this is what I'm now supposed to be getting or accumulating or maintaining or pursuing and while, of course, there's value in inner experiences, they can be uplifting and um, touching and beautiful, just as there's value in material things. They can keep us warm. If it's a little cool. Helen and I were noticing today that the, the, the buoyant optimism of the last few days of sunshine has suddenly sort of evaporated into relatively cool temperature, and it's like, oh, I'm actually cold. And I didn't actually bring a jumper for cool weather. I brought one for summer. And... You know, it's kind of like, oh, it's funny how that happens. So, of course, things have their place as and value, as do experiences. But 
they don't in and of themselves ultimately fulfill us. They don't ultimately in themselves release us from the sense of dissatisfaction or, or something lacking or something incomplete that we might encounter in our life and in ourselves. And I remember this, this way in which we... I don't think we really easily let ourselves know because it's kind of not really that cool to talk about this in many social situations that there's a sense we have that there's more that's possible for my life. And it's kind of, I think my probably first sort of beginning to get a sense of what that might be about was when, as a young teenager growing up in New Zealand, um, with my friends, we would we would go out, as we called it, going out. And what going out meant was actually going in to a pub somewhere and getting a few beers and drinking and saying, this is great, what a good time we're having. And then we'd usually say, what a great time we had the last time we did this. And then we'd go on to think about what a great time we were going to have the next time we did this. And I've been doing this for probably a couple of years, quite regularly, once or twice a week, when it suddenly occurred to me that I wasn't actually enjoying it. Although I was as enthusiastic as everyone else, saying, yeah, this is great. We had a great time last time. We had a, we're going to have a great time next time. And I suddenly realized, but actually, we don't really, at least I'm not particularly enjoying it right now. So maybe it wasn't that great the last time. Maybe it's not going to be great or that great the next time. And yet there's this way in which we often sort of maintain in the way we relate to past and future a kind of story about our life. And of course it might be a kind of different story that's not so enthusiastic. But when we actually check in with our experience, we sometimes find something different from the story that we're telling each other or telling ourselves. And so for me, that was a, a point in which I began to sort of wonder, well, gosh, you know, are there any other options? And growing up in a small town in sort of the countryside in New Zealand, there weren't really any other options, actually, <laughs> kind of sadly. Um, that was really what was going on. And, uh, and yet, of course, the world is larger than just one place. And so too, we can kind of live our own lives internally in the certain familiar territory that we've grown up in, that we've come to know of ourselves, of who we imagine ourselves to be, of how we live. And then sometimes we may come to question, we may come to wonder, is there more? Is there more to this life? Are there other possibilities for how I might live? And so one way we might reflect about this is uh, in, in, the, in the perspective offered by something the Buddha said once when he observed, he said, fools seek to pursue experience. The wise seek to understand it. Just a simple observation, but I think a profound one. What does it mean to pursue experience to, in, in, the, in the Buddha? The translation of, you know, fools. I would say fools is a little bit sort of harsh as a word, really. Uh, the behaviour might be foolish that we engage in. That doesn't mean that we are fools, but uh, it might mean that we're perhaps not understanding or seeing clearly. Perhaps sometimes we're blind. But to pursue experience... Pursuing experience in the idea and the belief that this, that these experiences that we have can somehow provide us lasting fulfilment or satisfaction. This is the basis on which we tend to operate if we're not conscious, if we're not awake to what's happening. And sometimes when we are awake, we just subscribe to that pattern, that view, when we're conscious of it. And yet... If it was going to work, if it was going to be that our experience in itself could give us fulfilment, it probably would have by now. We've all had plenty of experiences, sights and sounds, smells, tastes, touch, thoughts, feelings. That's what we have. That's experience. That is our life. And of course, 
There's plenty of that happening right here. We see them. They come and they go. They change. Sometimes we like them. Sometimes we don't. In that way, what's happening here is not that different than what happens in the world outside of here. It's not the real world out there. This is the real world, just in case you're wondering. Or maybe we could say they're both real in different ways. But sights, smells, tastes, touch, thoughts, feelings. That's what happens here. That's what happens there. It's not that different. Some of the feelings and thoughts and tastes and touches might be different. But the fact is, there's just a flow of this. And mostly what we do with it is we try and get more of the ones that we like and get rid of as many of the ones we don't like. It seems to make sense, really, doesn't it? Why wouldn't I do that? Why wouldn't I do that? That's called pursuing experience. And the Buddha says the wise endeavour, the wise seek to understand it. So what that's suggesting is rather than trying to get more experience, because we've had plenty already, could we look at it with the view of seeing what could I learn here, what could I understand from this, rather than can it just entertain me or delight me or please me. And what we see is this movement of grasping towards or pushing away experience, what we could call craving and aversion. These reactive patterns that drive so much of our life, they have a biological basis. They're survival imperatives in a way that are the underlying movers and drivers of much of our activity and express themselves in a certain way as trying to pursue or to control experiences. And it kind of seems to make sense. Why not? Why shouldn't I do that? You know, I don't like pain. I don't know if anyone else does, you know. Why, why shouldn't I try and avoid it? I like things that are pleasant. Why shouldn't I try and get more of them? It makes sense. And yet, if we ask ourselves, you know, how does it work out? Actually, it doesn't work out that well. We, f- we kind of find ourselves if we subscribe to and enact that particular view and orientation, we find ourselves constantly seeking for a condition that we can't quite find. The condition in which it all feels comfortable and nothing ever feels uncomfortable. Which we feel safe and secure. We're constantly flattered. We're never um, sort of embarrassed. And everything feels great. Maybe we think we remember a time when it was like that and we'd like to kind of get back there. We've heard about a time in the future that it might be that we'll get there because somebody else did once and they wrote a book about it, told us how to get there. And yet all of that, what that does, it kind of orients us to somewhere that we're not. And that orientation to somewhere that we're not, because our experience is never quite perfect, it seems. Our orientation to somewhere that we're not takes us away from the possibility of a, a deeper fulfillment, satisfaction and peace that comes from knowing deeply where we are and inhabiting this, this condition of our life unconditionally. So we need to Look at what goes on in this process to reflect on it and see what and how we want to give shape to our life, how we want to live our life. Because it's easy to just keep rushing towards what we've imagined must be the purpose and the point and the meaning of our life and yet see that it continues to move away in front of us. Now, how many times have we had the experience of finally we get the thing that we want? And gosh, we've so wanted it. And it's great for a while. And then after a while, it's kind of ordinary. And then a little while later, it becomes kind of boring. And then we forget we even had one of those things or ever wanted it. And equally, sometimes there's something really difficult. We think, oh, I so want to get rid of it. And if we've managed to, it's kind of great. And then 
Something else difficult turns up. You know, we're sitting here feeling drowsy. I wish I wasn't drowsy. I wish I wasn't drowsy. And my knee starts hurting. And I'm not drowsy at all. But I'm not any happier. I just got a painful knee. And suddenly, I'm full of energy. But all of that energy is saying, Ah, I don't like it. Or, you know, we've been practicing and just wishing for that moment when our mind would become quiet. Oh, it's natural, it's appropriate. We would wish for that. Because our minds can be so noisy. And the mind gets quiet. And it's like, oh, oh, thank you. That's so nice. Oh, that's great. Wow, I finally got it. I can really meditate now. I'm doing this. I've got it. Yeah. And we realize, oh, where did the quiet go? I'm so busy getting excited about that moment of quietness, it's gone. And so we see that there's a way in which it's hard for us to just be in the midst of our life because of these patterns that tend to want to push away or take hold of. And we become bound by them. We get bound by them. And the sense of our life and our world and our possibility becomes constrained and constricted and limited and tight. And we feel this in our body. Part of what we encounter when we come here on a retreat like this is the sense of tightness and the soreness and the ache. And sometimes, you know, it's, oh, it's nice to move those sore bits, but it also, it's painful because we realize, oh, our body and our mind get kind of caught in repeated cycles and patterns of behavior that start to rigid, rigidify, become... Um, they kind of lose the aliveness that has in it a natural fluidity. And so part of our work, both with the body and with the mind, is allowing ourselves to encounter those places and beginning to gently engage with them in such a way as that they can move, they can begin to soften, they begin to open. And again, softening initially doesn't mean that we can make them soften but that we need to soften our relationship to them, to give them space and to be willing to feel them, to feel what's uncomfortable in the body, to feel what's uncomfortable in the mind and to care about it. What we see is that when we act on craving and aversion, when we're trying to get and we're busy trying to make certain things happen or prevent certain things happen, and we see it happening in the meditation. I imagine we do anyway. It's what happens for most people. There's a sense of tightening and this tightening, it relates to what the Buddha spoke about as attachment. When we get caught by things, bound into things. And the word the Buddha used was upadana. It's a lovely word. It's actually a much well, I think it's a it's a it's a it's a more helpful word in a way than what we mean by attachment, because attachment can be a bit confusing for us. because it, it has a very positive element to it. And it's important that we recognise that. Attachment, and you hear a lot about in Buddhist teaching about, you know, detachment or non attachment. And um and in that, it's important to distinguish that from what would be, I think, we could understand as the necessary and important attachment that's referred to in, in sort of modern psychology as the, the connection that is formed between an infant and their primary carer. And that sense of attachment is actually really important. But in the Buddha's teaching, the word upadana that's translated as attachment, upadana is understood as the basis of boundness, of bondage, of suffering, of becoming entangled. If we unpack the word a little bit, it's actually quite lovely. Upadana. Dana is the root, and dana, some of you will know, I'm sure is the, the word in the, the Buddha's Pali language, of, that means generosity, that means giving, that has a sense of openness and open-handedness to it. And Adana is a negative. Ah, uh, uh, negates. I'm not an expert on Pali, but I, I know about this from friends of mine who are. Um, so it's like non-openness, non-generosity is adana. Uh, and then up here means very much, lots of. So it intensifies the fear. So it's 
I kind of like this. Very much lots of not openness. And then you get a feeling for, oh, what that feels like. What attachment in this unhelpful understanding of, or using, using the word for this particular quality, what it means. Actually, a loss of openness, a loss of givingness in life. That's what happens when we're caught in, when we're driven by, by craving and by aversion. By the demand for or the demand to get rid of experience. And the significance of this is considerable. We may sometimes think fulfillment, happiness and satisfaction comes from the experience that we have or what we can kind of get from life. And yet, teachings, spiritual teachings, point to the way, in fact, that the true qualitative element of our life, what we are most touched by, is not born of what we get, but from what we give in life. And so many times, in talking with people, about what's really been the most important thing, the most beautiful, the most touching, the most uplifted moments of their life, what they'll speak about. And, and certainly right through to on, on their deathbed, it's actually the love they've been able to give or the kindness or generosity they've been able to extend to others. This is what's actually given the greatest fulfilment for people. And it's interesting, you know, the people who have so much and some people have vast amounts of resource and wealth. Many of them, and certainly the richest, seem to eventually come to the conclusion the only way that having all of that wealth actually makes you happy is by giving it away. Not all of them come to that conclusion quite as quickly as I might wish they did. But it's there. We see it. And history is full of examples of this. More fundamentally, of course, the giving that's here is not about giving of our material resources, although sharing of them is something beautiful. It's the quality of giving ourselves to this life. <clears throat> not so much seeking to, or looking to see what can I get from it, what can it give to me, but what can I give to this life? How can I give myself, my life, what is here, fully? So, in terms of what this means, as a way to illustrate it, we can sometimes hear such teachings and suggestions um, coming from within the context of Buddha Dharma or from other frameworks of spiritual teaching and practice that we kind of see it as if that's somehow saying that we need to dismiss or distance ourselves from worldly, so-called worldly, not spiritual things. And the tendency to make aspects of our life, some, or to put somehow aspects of our life outside of our spiritual practice is an unfortunate outcome of that. To imagine that our whole life is not included in what we're talking about here. And in that we can sometimes think, well, I, I need to become detached. I need to not engage, to not be involved. I need to somehow find a safe distance of withdrawal from. And to my mind, it's rather sad that sometimes the Buddha's teachings are articulated in this language. I don't think it's a an accurate expression of what the Buddha was speaking about, though, of course, everyone is entitled to their view. But we talk about detachment. When we hear that, I, I have the sense of it's like 
kind of something being removed or withdrawn from and being distant from. That's what detached sounds like to me. And I don't think that's what the Buddha was talking about. What I find a more useful phrase or language for what we're talking about here is non-attachment. Non-attachment has a very different quality. And so if I were to illustrate this, it would be like to be entangled is like this. That's clearly got some problems involved because, you know, if we want to do something, we can't. To be detached, to say, oh, I'm not having anything to do with those things. I got entangled with them. I'm going over here and I'm going to watch them from a safe distance. Hopefully somewhere high, you know, sort of feels spiritual when you're up above. Um, <coughs> looking down, it's kind of our classical image of deities somewhere up there. And of course, they're just as much here as we are down here. But non-attachment is this. It's this close, but it can still move. To be disentangled does not mean to be withdrawn from or apart from. To be up close, to be intimate with our experience and yet noticing the tendency to want to push away or to take hold of, to become entangled with. And then what happens is that we allow our life to touch us without somehow giving it or the experiences. We allow the experiences of our life to touch us without somehow giving them in and of themselves authority over what's possible for us so that we can practice what it means to come into relationship with our life in those things that we might delight in in those things that we might find excruciatingly uncomfortable and in those things that might seem just kind of very day-to-day not exciting or problematic just whatever they are and of course in that last area which we don't pay much attention to when we're busy trying to control our experience we tend to ignore everything that's relatively just neutral, okay but there's a lot of space there for being touched by life and touching our life more fully, more deeply. And so in coming into contact and neither being entangled with nor withdrawn from our experience, kind of learning what does it mean to be close to my life. This is what the instruction is for the practice. It's not that I have to have a particular experience or that you need to stop your mind from doing what your mind does, but be close to it. And see, can I be awake to this? Can I see what's happening? So rather than pursuing the experience, which is the activity of fools, according to the Buddha, like, I've got to get this one, now I've got it, great. Or, oh no, I've got to stop that, oh no, I can't, damn. It's more like, oh, what's happening here? What's going on? The wise seek to understand. They don't have to have already understood it. This is, I, I find something profound in this. There's wisdom in just the process of seeking to understand what's going on. That's already the orientation of wisdom. And of course, it bears fruit in coming to more fully and deeply understand what's taking place. And so this practice of mindfulness, of presence, of being wakeful in our experience has a process it has the effect of starting to bring our life back into relationship to actually touch and connect with each moment with each experience irrespective of whether we find them pleasurable and comfortable uncomfortable or painful or kind of neutral and not particularly exciting to us or problematic either one of the translations for the word that we translate as mindfulness or attentiveness sati one translation is remembering and of course we can see if we're practicing mindfulness or we're practicing being present a lot of that involves remembering to be present and we keep forgetting and we have to remember oh I forgot somehow I don't quite know how it was. I was sure that I was intending to be present and then somehow I forgot because some thought or feeling or experience arose that I followed off into the past or the future. 
for some joyful or horrendous journey. And so remembering. If we feel into what that word means, it's, not, it's about staying connected, isn't it? That's what to remember means to stay connected. And I find it useful to counterpose it to the word dismember. And we can feel what dismember means. It's like, you know, when you have your limbs removed. Ouch. It's not kind of what we want to do here. And yet, when we, when we push away our experience, when we say, I'm not interested, I don't care about, I'm not willing to be open to aspects of what's happening, there's a kind of dismembering that goes on. There's a way in which you say, that isn't important. That I don't care about. That I'm not willing to include. So, so here, this remembering to be present, this remembering, oh, this is what's happening. Can I, can I give myself to this? Can I come to this? Rather than looking at what it's doing for me, or doing to me, it's more like, what can I give here? That attention, that willingness is, the, the, in a way, the agent of healing and of reconnecting that allows us to begin to remember which is the healing of dismembering, to start to rediscover the wholeness of our life, the wholeness of life itself, of which we are an expression and a part. And so it's important here to to be patient and to be kindly with what takes place in ourselves and at the same time to have a sense of, okay, what, what's to be learned? What's to be discovered? What, what can I understand here in this journey? Looking at seeing how my mind, my heart, my body act and interact. Getting to know what it's like from the inside. Not because someone's told me about it or I've read about it in a book, but because I've felt it and I've seen it and I've sensed it. And all the times when we might find ourselves caught in reactivity or distractedness, it's okay because this is where we're learning what goes on in our mind. Of course, that's not to say, great, so just spend more time being reactive and distracted. It's not to kind of be saying, let's do more of it. Of course, the instruction, the intention is, can I be present? Can I be awake? Can I let go of all of that activity? But when it happens, can I notice it? Can I see it? Can I be willing to say, oh, look what's going on here? And be curious, be interested. It's a little bit like training a puppy. To be kindly to yourself in this process. And I, I, I go walking on Dharma with a friend of mine who has a, has a well, no longer a puppy. Uh, Jago, his dog, is, uh, I guess, coming up for two years old now. But when we would first go out walking, Jago would just go running off and have to keep calling him back. And I was really struck by my friend's way of working with him because he didn't scold him. Or so he was firm. He was like, come back here whenever he ran off. But whenever he came back, he said, good dog. He gave him a little treat for coming back rather than saying bad dog for running away. Really useful model for our own heart and mind. Rather than giving ourselves a hard time when the mind goes off, the only reason you've noticed your mind has gone somewhere and got lost is because in that moment you're present, you're awake again. We go, oh, hey, look, it's back. It's not back once we bring our attention into the body. It's back in the moment you've noticed, whoa, look where my mind went. Wow, that was impressive or a bit worrying or whatever it was, but we've already seen, we're already awake. So to actually honour that, to say, oh, oh, yeah, the light comes back on. It's kind of mysterious, you know. Because by definition, when we're unconscious and lost, we're not there. We don't know we're not there. It's not even a problem that we're not there. And then suddenly the light comes back on. And we just, oh, here am I. Or wakefulness re-emerges out of the unconsciousness. We don't do that, as I said, because by definition, we weren't there. We were lost. But it, of course, isn't happening independent from our intention to be present and awake. The fruit of that intention 
arises, emerges when it's able to. And so we support that intention. We sustain that intention. And sometimes conditions seem to be supportive for the mind to settle, to quiet, to calm. (coughs) And when that's the case, we can just really allow there to be a refining and an attuning of the attentiveness to really track what's going on, the subtle experience in the body, in in the sense of sitting, in the fullness of the posture, in the moving of the body, if we're moving in a posture, in the sense of the movement of breathing in the body or in the taking of a step as we walk, or just the subtle adjustment to stay balanced when standing in meditation, as we're more present, we can refine the attentiveness. And this is a useful, helpful development. And we start to steady, or we notice a steadying, and a gathering, and a collectedness of mind. And this that leads to a unifying of the attention, which is really beneficial and helpful. And so this is one thing that we develop as we practice. And also, when conditions aren't supportive for the mind to be calm, to be quiet, to settle, if we're finding reactivity or distractedness or discomfort and agitation arising, or we're drowsy or we're sort of uncertain about what we're doing, this is a moment when, in fact, we're also called to bring a sense of our practice to bear. And often what's asked there is, this is actually about something about opening our heart. Can I open my heart to this condition in which my mind won't be quiet or my body won't be comfortable or my heart feels distressed? Can I open to that? Can I soften and include that? And this too is an important, essential and profound beneficial development that can take place in the practice. So when things feel calm and steady, great. When things feel uncalm and unsteady, Also, great. Both offer us opportunities for developing, for growing, for deepening in what is wholesome. And through all of that, also the opportunity for just coming to see more clearly what's happening here. What's actually taking place. We don't have to answer that question, but we can ask it. And just stay open, be curious, be interested. And that very curiosity is, is really the expression of giving ourselves to the practice, giving ourselves to our life right now, which is what our practice is engaged with. Life just here. And as we do so, perhaps then we see that we can, and we do, include everything. Nothing is to be left out. And the settling, the deepening, the opening and the very awakening of our heart and mind and our life, it flows. They all flow from each other. So I'd like to finish with a, a poem from Rio Khan, who was a, a Zen monk, a hermit and a poet, lived in the 17th, 18th century. He's one of my favourite characters from the sort of, the, I don't know, the, the pantheon of sort of Buddhist heroes from the past. Well, heroes is probably the wrong word, but uh, inspiring beings. And this is one of my favourite poems. So Some of you will probably have heard it before, but uh, I like it. So he writes, he says... The storm has passed, the rain has ended, and the sky is clear again. When your heart is pure, all things in your world are pure. Let go of this fleeting world. Abandon your struggle with yourself then the moon and the flowers will guide you along the way.
So let's sit quietly for a few moments together to finish. And so may we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we, may we come to know deeply what it is to engage wholeheartedly in this wakefulness, to leave nothing out. And to give ourselves to this life with nothing held back for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings and all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.